3: Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. I'm a sniper. I'm admitting it.
2: Oh, you're a sniper. Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. The fact that you don't keep your mouth shut is what's so great about you. Well, thank you. Truly. And will you tell that to my husband? First? If you can shine as you go into death, you can shine as you go into middle age, right? Yeah. Like, why not start now? I'm going to enjoy my life. At the end of the day, I'm just a little particle on an asteroid flying through space, so. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. We're just a spec. We're specs. Welcome to Go Ask Alley. I'm Ali Wentworth. And this season, I'm digging into everything I can get my hands on, peeling back the layers and getting dirty. I'm even, today, getting my hands on our dreams, peeling back those layers. You know, I used to be such a big dreamer. And I don't mean about my career and my life, but I was a big dreamer in terms of writing them down. I used to have little dream books next to my bed and I got so accustomed to it and I I look back now, I don't really understand most of the stuff that I wrote and sometimes there are a lot of pictures, but I've always been fascinated with the idea of dream interpretation and I think there are so many different ways to interpret dreams. And I think there are culturally so many different ways. I think that indigenous people have one way of interpreting things. I'm sure people in Polynesia have a different way of interpreting things in Serbia. Um, cause sometimes I think that cultures create their own symbols, but I love to talk about dreams and I talk about dreams a lot with my girlfriends. Um, Usually they all condense down to he's cheating on you or you want to cheat on him. But that's because we're not very deep people. My guest today is Siddhartha Rubero. He's a professor of neuroscience at the Brain Institute of the Federal University of Rio Grande do Norte, Brazil. He's got a bunch of impressive degrees from universities in Brazil and the US, mostly dealing with the human brain, biophysics, sleep, and animal behavior. Siddhartha is the author of more than 100 scientific articles in five books, among them, The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. He's incredibly smart, so I've had two cups of coffee. I hope I can keep up. So, Siddhartha, first of all, thank you for being on this podcast. You're in Brazil, which is, uh, as f- that's the furthest we've ever spoken to somebody. So, thank you. Sure. No problem. I'm going to start out with a huge umbrella question, which is, what is dreaming?
4: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, dreaming, from the biological point of view, thinking of us as, as animals,
5: mm-hmm.
4: dreaming is about the reactivation of memories. We have four to five uh, full cycles of sleep per night, which means we, we have our initial states, then we have the, the deep sleep in which your body is relaxed and you don't have much thought in your mind, and then you have the, the REM sleep in which you dream vividly. And then you you wake up a little bit, and then you go again and again and again, four to five times. Now, how did they evolve? How did did they arrive to the current state? It's complicated because we're talking about a very long process of of change. Okay. And we are far from the situation in which dreams evolved. So it's sometimes very hard to understand what they mean. Uh, in in our dialogue, what I will be defending is that dreams are tremendously meaningful if we let them be meaningful.
3: You know, I like to think of it as, uh, if my brain is a computer, it's almost like I'm downloading when I sleep, I'm downloading stuff, I'm processing it in a way that I didn't process it during the day. And then there are very many outcomes, of course. And many times when you talk to people about dream interpretation, they say, well, I'm Jungian, or I'm Freudian, or I'm Buddhist. So there are different ways of interpreting dreams. To me, Sigmund Freud sort of postulated that dreams are an articulation of our desires, that usually there is significance to them that can be psychoanalyzed, like the famous thing of being in love with their mother, and that Jungian is a lot more ethereal. So I'm just curious how you sort of merge Freudian and Jungian analysis when you do the work that you do?
4: Okay, so both Freud and Jung agreed that most of our minds consist of unconscious stuff, memories of everything that we lived and their possible combinations and many things that we forgot and many things that we don't want to remember. This is all there, right? And for Freud, the mind has parts, which he called the it or it, Right, and then there is the the ego, and there is a super ego that that tells us what to do and what not to do. But Jung goes in a different direction when he says, on top of that, we need to talk about the, the creatures of the mind, what he called the magos So when you meet a person in a dream, that person is a part of you as a whole, but it's not you, the conscious ego, that analyzes the dream. So when you meet uh, a representation of your grandmother, for example. It's not her, but it's also not you. It's a memory of her that knows things and does things in a way that is not you. And therefore, you have a lot to gain by talking to her. Right. (laughs) There's neuroscience in the past 20 years showing that there are neurons in the hippocampus that will really fire quite strictly to particular characters. So we're talking about mental structures that represent characters. They have a life of their own. And and it's so obvious they have a life of their own when we are dreaming. Because they do things that we cannot predict. And to approach them with respect and, and, and hoping for better insights and live a better life is something that our ancestors learned to do and honored. And it's something that we are forgetting and we need to rescue.
3: Oh, that's wonderful. That's beautiful.
4: In my book, I actually show how neuroscience in the past 100 years has to a large extent vindicated, corroborated, verified postulates or ideas that came from both Freud and Jung and other uh, people, women and men that contributed to psychoanalysis, to analytical psychology. But uh, what we must also see is that way before Freud and Jung, our ancestors, female and male shamans of the past, developed an art of dreaming that has to do exactly with what you uh, said in the beginning, that has to do with processing information, coming up with Potential outcomes. This is what I call in my book, the probabilistic oracle, as opposed to a a deterministic oracle, Mm -hmm. right? Dreams cannot tell you exactly what's going to happen. And they're often wrong, but they sometimes tell you what's happening in your life. And, And it can be very literal, or it can be very metaphorical. But if you know how to interpret them, then you get insight into what's going on and what is going on has to do at the very basic level with survival that's why we dream so much when we are in a in a challenging situation
3: right because you know the the other question is why do we dream i mean we need sleep for our brain and our organs and to kind of again reboot ourselves but why do we even dream in that state?
4: Right. So this is a very a basic, deep question in science. And it's been, you know, we are addressing it over many, many decades of work. And we still have many open questions. Now we, we know that there are several groups of animals. Mammals, birds, reptiles, the octopus, <laughs> the fruit fly. So in many different groups of animals, something called active sleep evolved. And this active sleep means that the body is quiet, but the brain is not. Or the nervous system is not. Now, what is the function of that? We now know it's related in humans and in, in, in many other animal models to memory processing, to emotional processing, to the reallocation of memories in the brain because we need to store so many of them. Mm-hmm. We need to erase a lot overnight, but we also need to, to store it in a, in a more compact manner. And and every time we go to sleep, we're doing that. And then dreaming comes on top of that, but not as as the spandrels of sleep or as a non-meaningful froth on top of what matters. But it really comes as the way by which our many, 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 many generations of ancestors of ours created culture and and created an explosion of culture that took us from the, the, the caves of the Upper Paleolithic to today very fast, Upper Paleolithic. (laughs)
3: <laughs> oh, that's a big word. That, that wasn't easy. Siddhartha, that's a very big word. Um, now, if a person doesn't dream or if they don't remember dreams, does that affect them in the waking world? I mean, are they missing out on something?
4: Absolutely, yes. But people are not aware of that because we entirely lost the, the our connection to the importance of those moments. So people are willing to sacrifice their sleep. And of course, their dreaming for many things because they want to stay on late at night watching screens, because they want to have alcohol at night or cannabis for that matter, or because they take sleep pills or because they take antidepressants. There are many, many ways in which you can impair your ability to sleep well and, and, and enough and to have a, a deep dreaming experience. Now, if they're doing everything right and they still can't recall a dream, they may be repressing it, but it's very rare. Mm-hmm to be able to repress it entirely. Usually what happens is that people will come back with a few images rather than a story. Right. And the tip here is not to give up. It's to say, okay, I, I get this image. Where does it lead me to? You may remember another part of the dream a couple of hours later. And you may say, oh, how do I know? that this is really a dream and not just something, some figment of my imagination that I just made up right now, you actually don't know. Mm -hmm. But the important thing here is to understand that every time you rescue those memories, you become better at doing it. Right. (laughs) So if you keep doing it after a few days, you can write four or five pages per night. But once we allow that to happen, what emerges is, is actually quite powerful because it's something that evolved from, you know, eons ago. And that now can be taken back and, and really, I mean, give people insight into what's going on in their lives, what are their desires, what are their fears, or what are their challenges and how to proceed, how to navigate reality. So I, I really like a, f- a phrase from Jung that says, the, the dreams prepare the dreamer for the following day. Yeah. Tomorrow is what it's all about. Right. So dreams couple past and present to future. Right. Dreams are something that we are coupling all the time, what happened to what will happen.
3: And it is the subconscious and the consciousness connecting. Is that what's happening when we dream? Yes. And especially when we wake up and we're
4: able to rescue the dream. Because when the dream is happening, we're we are at, usually at a very low level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. If it's high enough, then we become lucid. And then it's a different kind of dreaming that has... In which we decide what happens in the dream to a large extent. And this can be trained and this can be used to inclu- actually to learn. But we're talking about regular dreaming here. And in regular dreaming, we're not very conscious people. When you, when you're dreaming, you're usually not really making strong decisions. Things are happening to you more than, than you're making things happen, right? I mean, you actually do things and you go places and you meet people, but there's a huge feeling that, that you're going with the flow. However, when you wake up, if you know how to rescue that dream, to bring that memory back, and then share it with other people, then you create the possibility for reconstructing all that using your conscious mind. And this is when amazing insights happen in science, in the arts, in the business world. Uh, And if we look into ancient history, throughout our history, all over the place, all over the world, people relied on dreams for their private and public life. And we cut our connection to this about 500 years ago and one thing I've been defending is that maybe our feeling that the future is so bleak, even though we have all this technology and all the wealth of, of of knowledge across disciplines and beyond the boundaries of science, even though we have all that, we feel like we are we're drowning. Maybe we're drowning in a glass of water. And maybe it's because we lack the insight into the future and the ability to simulate the consequences of our actions because we're not sleeping and dreaming right, because we're doing something very different from what everybody else in the past did. We probably need to rescue some some values Mm -hmm. of living in the cave to live nowadays. So for example, the fact that the richest people in the world don't feel obliged to take care of of the weakest wouldn't be tolerated in a cave of 20 people.
3: Well, one of the things I would think is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, as you just touched upon, a dream was like a key into the door of making huge decisions. You know, Alexander the Great or a, a great leader would dream about invading a country or going to war, and then that would happen. Or like you said, the Mark Chagalls and the artists of the world would dream many of the things that they would then interpret on the canvas or they would write about. And... You know, that seems to be, in my opinion, changing because we're losing the pureness of dreaming, because we're drinking more, because we're taking antidepressants, because we're taking sleeping pills, all the things we talked about at the beginning that inhibit this. And I also I want to ask you about technology. Have we lost introspection because of our addiction to technology?
4: I think so. And I think we're overdosing on screen time. Nothing against, you know, audiovisual stimuli. Mm -hmm. I mean, fantastic. But when we discover things, we tend to exaggerate. (laughs) And I think we're just going through this process now. I think we are killing imagination. Because if people are spending two hours a day watching screens, that's one thing. But if they're spending 16 hours, they're reading less. They're listening to less music, uh, only music. They're going less to nature. They're seeing their friends less. They're doing many, 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 many things less. There's so many aspects of being that are being flattened on the screen experience that already people are noticing a problem with cognition in children. Mm -hmm. There's an amazing book by neuroscientist, Michel de that was just published last year. Uh, in, in Portuguese, it's the uh, free translation, the, the, the industry of idiots. Wow. Why, why has this title? It's because this is the first generation to have, in average, an IQ that is lower than their parents. Ever since the beginning of the IQ tests, they have been going up from generation to generation. And now our children, they have the feeling they know everything, but it's really, really shallow. And it's it's an overload of stimuli that actually leave little space to filling the gaps, to using the imagination. And and I say this as a father mm-hmm. of two boys. They're entirely addicted. The more they have it, the worse they get. Mm-hmm. It's not like they will be satisfied. So it's actually something really close to addiction to to hard drugs, right? How are they going to enjoy reading if they have something that is so much easier than reading in which everything is already prepared and complete and there's little space for imagination to to develop and in my book i just i go in detail about how the process of imagining things is really sort of the same thing as dreaming yeah it's dreaming while awake and it's something that distinguishes us from other animals we are able to do it in an amazing way other animals can surely do it but you know with less flexibility and one thing that is entirely uniquely human which is that we can share our dreams Using language. And this is what took us out of the caves and brought us to the internet and, and, and spaceships. But if we cut our connection to this ability to have dreams and share dreams, not just dreams for your own good, right? But dreams for the collective good. Because it's clear that in the world we are, it's, this is solely imbalanced, right? People are, they can really see their world, but not the other's world.
3: So when you say sharing dreams, Um, And I think in your book, you talk about uh, somebody dreamt the sewing machine, correct? Was that that the the, the machine? Yes. Yes. And so, you know, a, a friend of mine who is a screenwriter and a director who did Star Wars. So somebody like J.J., he would dream these incredible things and then would go on to create a Star Wars franchise or Star Trek or these incredible space things, which all came out of dreams. And that's what you mean by sharing, you know, artistically or technologically. Yes,
4: yes. I'm saying it on three levels, let's say. One is the individual, the ability to connect to your own unconscious and bring that dream back in detail and and try to really understand it. Second is to share it with other people, exchange ideas and try to develop those ideas in the real world. And I'm taking it a step further, which is to make sure that this does not only benefit the dreamer, but it benefits the community Mm -hmm. because we're having a problem of imbalance. There's too many people with with little and too few people with much. And I'm not only talking about money. I'm talking also about knowledge. You have some people that know everything about a specific aspect of nature and everybody else out yeah. So we need to bring the situation to a, a point of, of homeostasis, as we say in biology, of equilibrium, of balance. And this has to do. Dreams are a strong tool for us to create those links. So I'm I'm, I'm talking about the fact that by not sleeping and dreaming well, our rationality is impaired.
3: Right. Right. Let's take a short break.
0: And now in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition bombshell-escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God
1: work.
3: Okay, let's get back to it. Should we be writing them down? I used to write my dreams down when I was younger, but is that a good lesson for us and a good exercise?
4: Absolutely, Ali, because if you don't do it, first of all, you don't fully develop your ability to remember. By doing it, you will bring yourself to an optimum of of remembering. And the second thing is if you don't do it, it's very hard in, in, in the long run to use it toward to your benefit, to understand your situation and your context and, and the subtleties of the situation. Uh, dreams are really good to pick up details that are below threshold that will make sense when they're put together and they, they become an image. And this image is like, wow, I can see it. It's obvious now. And, but And if we tune to this, this is an old, very old art that we can tune to. It comes naturally like breathing. And if we do it, we become quite insightful about things that are going well, things that are not going well, what you can do to navigate that. And it becomes very visceral to use that to one's own benefit. And as I want to stress again, to have the intention to make it beyond yourself. This is important because in most traditions, if you look towards ancient Greece or ancient Egypt or Rome Or what happens today among hunter-gatherers or Native Americans, uh, Aboriginal people in Australia, peoples that still practice this art of dreaming. Usually people don't go towards dreaming like, ah, let's see what happens and something's going to hit me and I'll bring something back, perhaps, which is a passive attitude of like, I'm going to be hunted by a dream. Uh, their attitude is usually the opposite it 's like i 'm going to go after a dream. I want a dream to solve this problem. I want a dream to get uh, advice. I want a dream from my my grandmother that I need to her advice on this particular matter that she 's the only person that really understands the situation the way so this kind of relationship with dreams, which is the propitiation, the asking for a solution of any of any kind really. Of course, you cannot steer it completely. Right. Otherwise, actually, it would be boring. But you can put an intention that sets a path, that sets a direction.
3: Now, do you believe in the symbols of dreaming? You know, when somebody says, I had a dream where I was losing all my teeth, and then the psychoanalytic world or maybe the scientific world says, oh, yes, that means you're having acute anxiety or that means something. You know, do you believe in those symbols?
4: Okay. Uh... Short answer, no. Okay. But let me qualify. No, that. you can just
3: say that. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> I, need, I, need some, I need some backing. Yeah. Let, let
4: me explain mm-hmm. that. This is something that, this is a, a genre that started, uh, what, in Acadia, in Assyria, in Babylon 4,000 years ago. And you still can find it. And you can still find it on the internet. And people are still going to be making money on this for probably 1,000 years. But they have been debunked. Uh, Freud begins the interpretation of dreams by saying, look, this cannot make any sense because you cannot establish meaning without referring to the context of the dreamer. The context of the dreamer is the scenario where the drama happens. And if you don't have access to that, you're out of any possibility of interpretation. And, and, And you always, even if you think you're sure about it, then you need to ask the dreamer, does it make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and it has to be very careful because it's very easy to bring your own interpretation toward, to, to the person and the person say, yeah, oh, yeah, sure. And you really curtail the whole process.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure that Freud would love to know that I agree with him.
4: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Great. Yes. Uh, so, for example, if I tell you that I had a dream of a shark, you may guess it's a nightmare, but you need context. Maybe I'm a person that loves sharks. Maybe I'm a biologist that, that researches sharks or well, whatever. Freud actually cleared that, I think, that, that problem a long time ago when he said, you know, the dream is quite meaningful, always meaningful if you know how to interpret it. Right. But the person that is best positioned to interpret it is the dreamer. <laughs> and if you have a dialogue that is open enough with your family member, with your spouse, with your friends, with your psychoanalyst this person will be mm-hmm. useful but not bring the solution the person will help you dissect the, the pieces that come together to form the dream when we have a major challenge in our lives people that are facing a terrible disease people that are that just lost their jobs or think what they will you know or the opposite think people that have this huge expectation about something really good that will, will happen but may not happen when you're at the brink of a very eventful thing dreams tend to be more Unified, more cohesive. They're dealing with your big problem. And if you know how to interpret them, usually it's a very clear thing. I'll give a, 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 a big example, famous example. Before the killing of Julius Caesar, his wife dreams about his killing. She has a premonitory dream that depicts what was going to happen because it was likely that it would happen. He has a very different dream in, that is metaphorical in which he flies through the skies and meets Jupiter. And that's a very metaphorical way of saying you're going to become like a God, you're going to die. Right. And he became divinized after his killing. So th- just to give an example how clear the interpretation can be when things are, are very serious. But in, in our regular lives, we're not facing one major challenge of life and death. We're facing 3,232 small challenges and 534 <laughs> challenges of, of medium size, and which produce v- various amounts of anxiety. And in the end... Your dream becomes a collection of those things that doesn't really make sense as a whole, but it makes sense if you take it apart, if you analyze it. Right. And to do this analysis, you need usually you need dialogue. Yes. And I think, I think it's worth to think that dreams don't have to have a single meaning. It's about making sense and being useful for yourself and for the community. And sometimes that means embracing two, three, four different meanings.
3: Yeah. And again, it all goes back to the individual. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, Freud, I mean, I believe he was saying that dreams were a day residue, right? Revisiting all the memories and emotions during your waking life and processing them. And I'm just thinking that historically, if there were dreams, premonitions, let's say, of Caesar's death, I wonder right now during, you know, the pandemic, I bet people had dreams, nightmares, about dying, which I'm trying to understand the difference between a dream that could quite, in fact, be a premonition or a dream that is completely fear-based.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think that, in fact, the distinction is is not very uh, clear. Why? Because Caesar's wife could have had the same nightmare two days before or 10 days before.
3: Or it could have been wishful thinking. Yeah, because the... Co- <laughs> Well,
4: perhaps. No, I don't think so, but based on, on we, what we know about them, <laughs> uh, okay. but perhaps. But the, the thing here is that it's since dreams reflect what's going on, the late Jonathan Winson, one great pioneer of investigating the biology of dreaming at Rockefeller University and then in California, he, he told me, and, and, and it's something that I, I, I write in my book, dreams have to do with what's going on now in your life. So they are a premonition of the future only if the future becomes like that. When they happen, they are what they are is memories of the past that got reactivated. Now, they got reactivated in a way that maybe, only maybe, may happen in the future. And sometimes you act so that it happens, you try to make it happen, and sometimes it's something you don't want to happen, so you try to prevent it. And it's in that way that we should read the old texts from Sumeria or Babylon or Egypt that said that people could sometimes see the future through dreams. And this isn't the Bible, it's all over the place.
3: So there's basically a direct correlation between real life anxiety and the bad dreams that are interpreted. Yes,
4: yes. And that's why people, actually, this is a theory that has been going on for 20 years in the field, coming from a a couple of Finnish researchers, that says that the most ancient dreams must have been nightmares. Mm -hmm. The prototypical dream is a threat simulation is something that is telling you, oh, things are not gonna go well. And it has to do with the negotiation of life and death.
3: Well, I assume that cavemen who basically lived in fight or flight mode must have had bad dreams every single night because every day they were faced with, you know, being, being hunted or being killed or... I mean, this is one
4: narrative. There are other narratives. And, and the fact is that we know little. There's a book that is fascinating. I'm reading now called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and uh, forget the second author, in, in which he argues probably we had long periods of people living well. Now, in our society, we we are apart from that world. We, I mean, the people that are wealthy enough to eat every day and to have a shelter and so on. Because, of course, most people in the world are not and their dream experience is quite different. Mm-hmm. But for the people that are in the middle class or above, then they think, well, dreams mean nothing because I don't need them to live. Right. Because I have so many little problems. And if I don't pay attention to my dreams... Things don't change much. But what I contend is that even in that case, if they were able to connect with their dreaming and to make that dreaming be about about themselves and the community, things would get better for them and the community. Because this is a very old neurobiological power that we have that we're not using to our benefit and also not to the benefit of the community.
3: Right. You say in your book that research has shown that a high incidence of nightmares among children from conflict-ridden parts of the world, such as Gaza Strip and Kurdistan, are incredibly violent events that occur in their sleep process, as opposed to children who live in upper-middle-class lives in northern European cities, and that these violent events are so powerfully codified, right, that they possess very strong synaptic connections in the brain. Are you saying that these people because of these uh, you know, tragic events, if they use it in their community, if they verbalize these bad dreams, nightmares, they can somehow process it in a way that they can come up with solutions for whatever terrible situation they're in, and that the children in the European cities are just sort of placid?
4: Well, I wouldn't go that far, but okay. I think you're touching a very important point that has nuance. Okay, so it goes like this. If you have a problem and you're dreaming about that problem, to be able to talk about it and revisit it is usually going to help. However, if you have a certain memory that is so unbearable, that is a scar so deep, that the mere reminiscence of that event makes you cringe and, and, and feel pain, those experiences themselves become traumatizing. So for people that have post traumatic stress disorder, the wars veterans or people, the firefighters or, or whatever, people that have this kind of problem, PTSD, right, will show repetitive nightmares. This is actually one of the hallmarks of PTSD. And they need help because they if because just having more nightmares will dig deeper the, the hole they're in. Um, so to put it in a biological manner, the more electrical activity that passes through those neurons that represent those memories, the strongest the connections will become. So it becomes an attractor of electrical activity. Every, every time the person relaxes or goes to sleep, but just actually relaxes, dozes a bit, these memories will surface and it will become painful to sleep, painful to dream, and, and life becomes uh, unbearable. So they need help. What sort of help? So that help has to do with changing those connections. What we would say, you know, at a, at a, at a psychological level to re-signify those memories, to say, okay, let's, this happened, you can't change it, but let's try to associate this with other things that are not so menacing, that are not so uh, hurtful, and that will allow you to move on. And a lot of what is done in psychotherapy in different ways. From the pharmacology that tries to pair the reactivation of those memories with something that calms you down to the psychoanalytical setting that pairs the evocation of those memories or something close to those memories, sometimes not even go there, with a a setting that is quite um, mild, non-menacing.
3: So MDMA is something that might work. Oh, MDMA is a revolution for trauma. Yeah.
4: It's a revolution for trauma. And I think psychedelics in general and cannabis are a revolution for, well, cannabis is, is a wide arch arc of applications. But in the case of psychedelics and MDMA is among them, for trauma, depression, it's really a, a game changer and the industry knows it.
3: Yes. We'll be right back.
0: And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with a limited-edition bombshell-escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.
5: work.
3: And we're back. You know, I wanted to ask you about meditation and transcendental meditation and how that affects a lot of what you talk about in your book, meaning it's not REM sleep, but the brain connections, they must be very similar. In other words, and people do say they dream in a meditative state.
4: Absolutely. Uh, If you were to consider what's going on from the point of view of the brain, we're talking about the engagement of the pretty much the same brain areas, what we call the default mode network. It's a circuit of brain regions that allow us to remember the past, imagine the future, tell stories, invent stories, create stories, to be able to imagine the minds of others and also to be able to put ourselves in other shoes all those things which are essential for living a happy life and for living in a community, they are engaging brain areas, which are the brain areas engaged during dreaming, engaged during the psychedelic experience, and engaged during meditation. Now, what happens to those brain areas in terms of who gets activated and deactivated at what frequency, in synchrony, not in synchrony, those details, they vary depending on whether you're considering Dreaming at the beginning of the night at the end of the night, dreaming when you're awake, or dreaming when you are after drinking ayahuasca or after transcendental meditation or yoga nidra mm-hmm. so those things will change and I think there is now more awareness of that and so for example, people that are in the in the field of psychedelics, there's so many different people that are becoming more and more aware that To talk about psychedelics in the 21st century is also to talk about dreams, is also to talk about meditation, and that means the coming together of people that are within science and out of science, doing things that are of traditional knowledge in the East, in the West, among Native Americans, among Tibetans. So we're talking about a coming together of different traditions to understand the phenomenon of human imagination in its different forms that actually must have been originated in the dream experience during Ram's sleep at night in the second half of the night. This is one of the main arguments in my book, and I, I believe there's a lot of converging evidence to that.
3: One of my favorite things is the writings of St. Augustine of Hippo, who was a 4th century theologian. He was racked with guilt after having some steamy sexual dreams, and he was agonizing over whether this constituted a sin. Is it? Is that cheating? If you have dreams where you have desires about other people or sexual in nature, is there anything to be interpreted by that? I think
4: so, Ali. Oh,
3: uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> and I think we need to
4: liberate our desires. One thing is to to act on desires, and it produces consequences in the real world, right? Mm-hmm. But we have a, a, the conscious part of our minds that has certain commitments. And certain beliefs is a very, very small fraction of the total mind. The total mind is mostly unconscious and it's composed of lots of impulses and, and desires and visceral fears, which get to be expressed through a huge variety of creatures of the mind, people that we met before, mixtures of those people, fictional characters, you know, animals that speak, all that stuff that makes up our mind. And all that becomes the stuff of dreams. How could we possibly try to repress that? Mm-hmm. So it's much better to become aware of that, to understand it, know it's there. I have this desire, maybe a crazy desire. It's like something I consciously do not desire, but it's part of me. This is what Jung called, uh, I don't know if they, how to say it in English, a sombra. I guess it's the shade, and maybe the technical name is, is is a different one. But it's not just what you, what is bad in you or what you think is bad, but actually everything you're not,
5: mm-hmm.
4: right? So, for example, I, I am not a, a piano player, but I could become one if I trained. So this is something that is in my unconscious that I am not in my conscious life, but I could possibly become one. So this uh, shade. Is actually the source of things that we don't want to become, but it's also the source of things that we may want to change. So I think it, it, we really need to take dreams with respect and understand that they are expressing to ourselves, or our conscious selves, what we are unconsciously. And to say, oh, this is wrong, is to say no to yourself. Now, to say I'm going to do this in the real life is a different story.
3: Well, yes, yes.
4: Because you can imagine the consequences, consequences of our, your actions. If you're able to imagine the consequences of your actions, maybe you say, oh, okay, I would like to do this, but I want to do it. Right. And that's, Freud talks a lot about that, about how you can learn to, to see how, what's going on and then calm down. Yeah. And relax and be okay with the situation as it is.
3: So in, in a perfect world... Would you love to have sort of sleeping pods in businesses, Yes. naps at schools, more opportunity? Yes, for- hammocks. Oh, hammocks. Uh,
4: schools need uh, hammocks okay. in places that allow it, that are not too cold or in places that are you know protected. I have been doing this kind of research for, for years now. We showed, and other groups in the world have shown, that if you allow children to nap in schools, they will... Learn more.
3: Well, they they retain more, right?
4: They retain more and it lasts longer. Mm -hmm. Last year, two years ago actually, we published a paper showing that, and this is a problem in Brazil, there's a huge population of illiterate people in Brazil still. And children take forever to learn to read and write in some communities. So we showed that we can, with three weeks of training, half an hour a day, followed by naps, they can double their speed of reading. And that lasts for at least four months and in one group for at least a year. That's incredible. Just by having a nap after the training to, to make a difference between say B and D or P and Q, which are things that hinder learning to read and write. But if you don't have the naps and only the training, they learn well, but they lose it later. So it doesn't stick. And I think the schools in the future will always have uh, opportunities for sleep. And, and I would say sleep on demand. After learning, we need to sleep. And before learning, we need to sleep. Yeah. Now, I think this should also be taken into consideration in the workplace because people become more creative, more relaxed, less prone to conflicts when they sleep well. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why we shouldn't embrace the siesta.
3: Uh, listen, I agree. Europe has that down, Americans not so much. So, okay, when I see my beloved dog who's lying next to me and he's asleep and his paws are moving and his eyes are fluttering. And sometimes he makes little, I always assume he's just dreaming about chasing a squirrel. But is there any evidence that it's deeper than that? Do I have a deeply thinking animal next to me?
4: Well, we don't know how conscious our pets are. There's no reason to believe that they are so distant from us especially in the case of dogs that were, uh, changed so much in, in contact with us. Right. But we also don't know how to express that. Uh, a philosopher called Wittgenstein, right. Said if a lion could speak, we would not understand. Right. So to understand somebody is to be able to put yourself in their shoes or right in their leash or, (laughs) you know, to be able to assume that perspective. Uh, There were experiments done in the 60s with cats, classical experiments that I describe in the book by Michel Jouvet in Lyon in France, showing that when we go to REM sleep, our bodies are inhibited. We do not act out our dreams, right? You move your eyes, but you don't move anything else. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, sometimes you move a little bit, but not too much. Um, And there neurons in the brain that will make that happen. When those neurons are uh, not allowed to work, what he found is that the cats will pounce and meow and do and jump and, and curl and, and do lots of you know cat things when they are in REM sleep, which suggests that they are having a very rich dream experience that enacts the, the kind of behaviors that are really important for their survival as a species, things that make sense to do in a cat life will emerge during cat dreaming. And you could then probably imagine very similar things for, for your dog. But how much can your dog travel in the past and in the future? Right. We think it's quite little in comparison to us.
3: I'm going to assume that my dog is solving big world problems when he's asleep. Perhaps. All right. So now, Siddhartha, it's your turn to ask me a question. Nothing too science heavy.
4: (laughs) No, I want to know what is the dream that most impacted
3: your life? The dream I've had while sleeping. Yes. Yes. I think I've had a few recurring dreams, and one of them was a recurring dream of of yelling, constantly yelling at my family, yelling, yelling, yelling. And I couldn't figure out what that was. And actually, during that time, I was writing things down, any kind of symbol, like a table from my childhood. And I realized there was something unresolved that I needed to deal with. And I actually ended up sort of with the help of dreams and psychoanalysis, being able to have a conversation with my family about being overlooked and not seen and and actually it made us stronger for it. So it was a dream that certainly helped me in the long run and gave me the ability to see that there was a subconscious issue and deal with it. Although dreaming it did not make me feel good, the end result was actually incredibly therapeutic and cathartic. Awesome. Oh, Siddhartha, thank you so much. This book is so rich with so many things that, you know, uh, we couldn't get into everything or this would be a four-day podcast. But The Oracle of Night is such a wonderful book. And thank you so much for being on my podcast.
4: Uh, Excellent conversation. Thank you.
3: So Siddhartha's book, The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams, is It's a very dense book, but it is really an incredible read. And just talking to him now, it made me realize that I got to start writing down my dreams again. And it also made me very sad because I thought about how there's so much turmoil in the world right now. The fact that we've been seeped in this global pandemic and how maybe if we have dreamt a little more and paid attention to our dreams, there would have been all kinds of solutions. Um, But also, it's interesting to know that you know, all dreams are interpreted based on the dreamer. You know, I used to think, oh, I can just look up, what does it mean when you see a four-legged person in my dream or a cow with a heart over it? What does that mean? And I think it doesn't necessarily mean anything, like he said, until you really interpret it yourself. So I urge you to read the book Thank you for listening to Go Ask Allie. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and follow me on social media on Twitter at Allie E. Wentworth and on Instagram at the Real Allie Wentworth. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a topic to dig into, I'd love to hear from you. And there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can call or text me at 323-364-6356. Or you can email a voice memo right from your phone to Go ask Podcast at gmail.com. If you leave a question, you may hear it on Go Ask Alley. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.